from the studios of TLC Talk Radio. It's Tasha Talks. I'm your girl, Tasha. And, of course, we have an incredible show lined up for you today. Don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. And, of course, check us out on TLCTalkRadio.com, 24-7 Edutainment. Um, We uh, have on the line my friend, uh, journalist Jason Palmer, and we want to discuss the aftermath of the murder of uh, George Floyd. Welcome to the show, Jason. Hello, Tasha. <laughs> How are you? I'm well. We miss you on the show, <laughs> but I know you've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm busy as uh, busy as putting mildly what I'm dealing with right now. I was so. about to say, particularly now. So we went from, and we haven't left it, but we went from pandemic to this, and. It's just been crazy. So to recap, uh, George Floyd was murdered uh, by former Minneapolis police um, officer Derek Chauvin and three others who did nothing to serve and protect Mr. Floyd. Um, And Chauvin placed his knee or pressed his knee uh, onto a handcuffed Floyd for over eight minutes, um, violating both police policy and Mr. Floyd's rights and the aftermath has been varied and swift and just a lot happening at once and for black people we're exhausted I think I think that's a fair statement to make um so (laughs) four officers were fired uh his wife filed for divorce (laughs) and the reports say I I heard some talk Jason that people were saying oh she's doing that to protect her assets but my understanding is that she didn't want any spousal support or anything of that nature I think she did want the house but you know that I have to double check on that but let's talk about the firing of these four officers what can you tell us sure um pretty much that angle of this story has been pretty much reported pretty good the decision was made by the chief of police um alon and was supported by the mayor so the mayor of minneapolis is jacob fry Mm -hmm. um and uh uh chief arondo is his name he's the first uh African-American chief in the history of the Minneapolis Police Department. And uh, just to give people a little bit of history uh, regarding this agency, um, the Minneapolis Police Department has had a uh, long history of uh, systemic racism within it. Uh, They've had a number of high-profile cases um, with Jamal Clark, which was a young black man who was shot and killed by police, and uh, people there in Minnesota say he was murdered. Then we had the situation uh, a couple of years ago where there was a Somalian-American police officer who uh, shot a white Australian lady, um, and it caused an international controversy. That officer was convicted of third-degree murder and is currently serving 12 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and people in Minnesota and around the country have said that's a perfect example of the difference in justice up there in Minnesota. So, you know, I lived there for about a year and a half, um, moved from there in 2018, um, shortly after Philando Castile was murdered by another police officer that was in suburban Minnesota, suburban Mm -hmm. Minneapolis. So there's a history there, Mm -hmm. um, with this, um, in this particular case, um, it was so egregious, uh, the former officer's actions that once the chief and pretty much anyone else looked at the videos and there are about two or three different angles, yeah. um, they quickly made the correct decision in firing everyone involved. And so the problem is 
right now is that those other three officers they fired have not been arrested or charged with anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you said in the opening um, that, I mean, their acts were complicit. Mm -hmm. They they allowed it to happen. Um, They actually sat there and allowed it to happen and didn't try to stop it. And um, a number of my law enforcement friends have told me it's quite simple. When you place someone in custody, meaning you have them in handcuffs and they're in custody, they're not your responsibility. Their safety and well-being is your responsibility. Um, He was in custody. He was handcuffed. He was pinned to the ground. At that point, his health and well-being is up to all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And they all failed in that. And all four of them need to be charged. Um, And that's currently what we're waiting for. But the chief took the actions that he could take at the moment, which was to fire the officers. The investigation is currently with the Hennepin County uh, District Attorney's Office. And they have to be the one that bring the charges and say, okay, go arrest these guys. So it's not the chief's uh, call on this. If it was up to him, they would have been probably arrested that day he fired them. But um, we just have to see what the state's attorney does. Yeah. Um, And... You know, obviously around the country, there have been uh, many uh, protests, uh, peaceful protests, um, and, you know, a lot of concern. Um, you you have the uh, people who are out there to obviously do the peaceful protests. You have the people who are out there to agitate and instigate and make the movement, particularly Black Lives Matter, look bad. I'm sitting here in my Black Lives Matter earrings um, because they do indeed matter. Um, and... There's been, in in my opinion, just watching the news coverage, and I mentioned to you pre-show that I've had a hard time watching all of it. I know I have to remain informed because, one, I need to know, and two, this is what I do. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I struggled with watching it, but I noticed a distinction um, that was different to me. It felt different. It, it seemed different um, in the way that the news uh, reporters were uh, making a distinction between the protesters and those who were there to take advantage of a bad situation. What were your thoughts on that? So my thoughts on this have actually been evolving since the protests started around this country last week. Um, And I think this is what's confusing everyone. Um, There's something darker going on here Mm. is the simplest way to put it. They're not protesters and they're rioters. There are protesters, there are rioters, but there are also anarchists, mm-hmm. and there are also white supremacists involved. Yeah. So you've got four completely different agendas taking place in one event. And I think that is what is causing so much confusion around the country right now. People can't wrap their minds around this. So you have the people who are out there protesting what happened to Mr. Floyd. Right. And they are out there, you know, making demands. You know, they're saying, hey, you know, this is going on too much. You have peaceful protesters, mm-hmm. okay? Then you have actual rioters and people who are breaking laws and taking advantage of the situation for their own personal opportunity. Um, So that's a separate group. That's the second group. Then you have a third group, which are the anarchists. These people just don't like government in general, and they are taking advantage of Mr. Floyd's death and the protests around it to get their message out that the government is terrible we need to start completely over, and they are the ones that are out there burning post offices, um, attacking government targets. Um, they put Nashville City Hall was on fire. That's the work of the anarchists. Mm-hmm. And then there's a fourth group, 
and this is the hardest one for our people to actually wrap their minds around, but they need to understand it and do it as quickly as possible. There are white supremacists out here who are joining these protests under the guise of, hey, yeah, you know what they did to Mr. Floyd is terrible. And they are just vandalizing businesses and property in black neighborhoods on purpose. Yeah. So there are four different elements in this one event. And that's the thing we need to get people to understand. The white supremacists are out there, the anarchists are out there, the protesters are out there, and then the lawless people are out there. Those are the four different aspects taking place. And so, you know, I live in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I live down, you know, by the Illinois border, and we had an incident in Kenosha two days ago where Black Lives Matter protesters were protesting peacefully with a police escort mm-hmm. through Kenosha, no problems. On two occasions, uh, white residents of Kenosha came out of their homes with guns, threatening people. One person, who we've now determined is a white supremacist, came out with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, pointed it at the group, and was threatening to shoot people. Fortunately, the police were there. They immediately took this guy into custody. Um, and He's currently being held in Kenosha County Jail waiting a bond hearing. So that element is out there. Yeah. That element is out there, and I know a lot of our black people in 2020 are thinking, you know, that stuff was almost over in the 60s. Well, we need to get our heads wrapped around the reality of this world right now. Yeah. Um, there's a political climate, there's a social climate, there's an economic climate, there's a mental health climate, there's a, a, a COVID disease out there. This situation has been brewing for months. And I've been telling people about this, those who follow me. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been predicting this pretty much every step of the way. You could see it coming. If you study human history, if you understand a little bit about human sociology and psychology, you can see this coming. Mr. Floyd's tragic murder was the match that lit the gasoline that was connected to the dynamite, Hmm. which was sitting on top of the nuclear bomb. Wow. And everything has now gone up. Yeah, that's an analogy for you, and it's accurate. Absolutely accurate. And so you're right. People have to be careful, uh, you know, and I had a conversation with a relative yesterday who told me I was crazy when I said exactly what you said that, hey, this is not the way it appears. It's not just, you know, people rolling by trying to loot the liquor store. It's not just that there's something else, like you said, something much darker uh, coming through. Yeah, it's definitely a more sinister approach. And so, as I relate to your question about the media, I think those of us in the media, um, and t- especially the television news media, um, it took us a while to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first clues of it was actually what was happening in Minnesota. After the second day of the riots, their, their police and their governor came out and said, hey, this is some coordinated stuff. We, we've covered protests before. We've even had some civil unrest. This is nothing like that. And that was my first clue. Okay, there's something darker going on here. You know, and they kind of put it out there of, of how how coordinated the, the the event seemed to be. You started a fire here so that they send a, a troop of cops here and then you attack in other areas. And, you know, I knew it was different when they took over a police station. You know, when they commandeered that the third district, the third precinct up there in Minneapolis, I knew it was something really kind of darker going on here. But I think, you know, the media also, um, the way they've covered this thing has not been perfect. Um, I've got some issues with the media in general right now. Uh, but 
And I'll give you a perfect example. So last week, Channel 2 in Chicago, WBBM, mm-hmm. laid off a number of reporters. I saw One it. of those was Pam Zeckman, wow. who is a longtime yeah. investigative reporter, like one of the top in the business. Yeah, she so got laid me. off. Floored me. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's more uh, producers, newsroom people. So the coverage is also a reflection of what we're dealing with in our industry where we just don't have enough hands on deck. Mm -hmm. So during the uh, serious um, rioting that was taking place in Chicago on um, Sunday, so there was obviously the riots that took place Saturday night in downtown Chicago. So basically every media outlet in Chicago expecting the second outbreak of of rioting concentrated on downtown. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, those of us who got street sense know they ain't going to go back to the place they just looted because, well, they just looted it. There's <laughs> <Right>. nothing left. <laughs> so if you're forward thinking, you say, okay, it's obviously, you can read the temperature of society. It's going to keep going, but where is it going to spread out to? Sure. And for most of the morning and into the early afternoon, they were clearly focused on downtown. They were showing broken glass. In the meantime, the south side was going up. Yeah. I mean, it was going up bad. And there were literally riots taking place, and they were still downtown. Um, Jim Williams of Channel 2 and I are actually pretty cool. He grew up in Chatham, which was the neighborhood I grew up in. Mm -hmm. He was live on there, and I was just sending a message like, Jim, y'all are missing the story. The story is not downtown. You showing me broken glass from the night before. The story is what is going on right now. And, you know, he reached out kind of to me and said, hey, you know, we're having trouble getting out there because they've shut down a lot of streets. I'm like, Jim, y'all got a helicopter. Right. Y'all got a helicopter. Yeah. And so eventually the news coverage did focus to the south side, mm-hmm. um, but it was at least two hours after the stuff had really started. So, you know, I think the media has been behind the eight ball on a lot of this. It's something we haven't seen before. And I also think, you know, it's a lot of because of the cuts and things that have happened place in news media organizations around the country. Sure. So, you know, that's in terms of just some of the coverage. But there's also been misidentification of some things. Um, you know, they'll come to the scene and say the people are rioting. In one case, the people were not rioting. They were actually cleaning up after the riot. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just think, you know, you have a lot of newer people in the news media because of the layoffs of a lot of experience. And that's why a lot of mistakes are happening in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, that plus the fact that this is something like we have not seen in modern history uh, before. Yeah, absolutely. And that's absolutely uh, accurate. You're right. If they can't get there or they don't even know to go there, like you said, are you forward thinking? Are you thinking about it? Uh, absolutely. I'm not going back to the place that I, first of all, it's downtown Chicago. So if I'm of the, the, the criminal element, I ain't going back down there, <laughs> you know, like, eh, they're right. probably, they're probably ready to protect that. They weren't, they, we caught them off guard the first time. It's not going to be a second run, but you're right. And so it moved. My parents are in Inglewood. And so uh, a friend of mine, we both live in the South Burbs. She popped up early in the morning she said are your parents good on groceries and I was like I think so but you're right let me go to the store and so my way I'm really close to Indiana I popped up I did awesome uh you know a lot of shopping for my parents and I drove it to Inglewood early in the morning (laughs) because I didn't know what Mm -hmm. shutdowns were going to be like um and I wanted to get back you know, to my area. And then sure enough, I started getting those notes about what time curfews were going to hit because again, I wasn't following the news and it was an evolving situation. So 
Sure. You're 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 absolutely uh right about that. Just, I <laughs> I wanted things to be what they were. And as I drove through Inglewood when I got off the expressway, um, I just saw things. I was literally there. I do the live streaming for our church. We're not gathering everyone. But because I have to go to church on Sunday, I had just driven through the area. When I got off the expressway Monday morning to see, you know, to check on my parents, it was just a very different look. And I was like, I know darn well I was just here yesterday. So uh, right. lots, uh, lots to cover. Um, what has been your uh, thoughts on the reaction of people? So here's what I've noticed on Facebook. I've seen a lot of solidarity from white friends and associates. Um, I've seen a lot of calling out a friend of mine. I won't say his name, but he literally started tagging his white friends and saying, why are you silent on this? What <laughs> has been the response that you've seen on uh, social media or even just in real life when you talk with people of other races? Because it's been more like, like we were whining, like we were just complaining, like these were one-offs, whereas we know these things are systemic, they've been happening. Um, and so now what I've kind of seen, I'll give you an example. Today I opened my T-Mobile Tuesday. They give away free stuff, right? And so it was 40% off and free shipping at Reebok. Okay, well, let me go to Reebok.com. As I opened it, there was this message um, that acknowledged uh, the plight of black Americans. And it floored me. It's simple. I know it's accurate, but I couldn't believe. The last time I'd seen a company take a stance like that was Nike with um, Colin Kaepernick and Ben and Jerry mm -hmm. when Black Lives Matter uh, – initially started those were the only two companies sure. that i recall seeing really act actively taking a stand so is ha has there been a difference in your estimation well i think i think there's a different reaction on this one because the the video was so egregious mm. um where any person could look at that i mean even fox news for christ's sake was like jesus christ this is illegal right <laughs> i mean it's fox news even they were like holy crap these guys are terrible right um it's it's we have seen that um we've seen a more major companies come up and make statements i think a part of that is one um, they realize African-Americans are part of their customer base. Mm -hmm. um, two, I believe African-Americans have ascended um, in a lot of these large companies and corporations into now management positions. Mm -hmm. I think we're at that point in history where our people are moving up in a lot of these business worlds. So a lot of us are actually have seats at the table. Yeah. Um, and we can do things ourselves. We don't have to wait for the company to do things. We can initiate a lot of this stuff ourselves. So, yes, I have seen that. Um, I think um, most of America is looking at this and, and saying we've got a problem. Yeah. And we have not addressed this problem since it started. Mm -hmm. uh, we have not acknowledged it. Mm -hmm. You know, President Clinton back in the day did issue a, an apology for um, enslaving Africans or uh, this country enslaving Africans. But, you know, Tasha, the thing is acknowledging it, acknowledging the mistake is one thing. That's right. Fixing a problem is completely different. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, you can acknowledge it publicly and everybody's going to appreciate that, but that's not all you can do. You have to actually change this stuff. So that means when it's when you have to, for instance, um, I use Illinois school districts and how they're funded mm -hmm. as a perfect example. It's funded based off of property taxes. Yeah. Well, you know, doggone well, if 
you live in a very affluent area, your school is going to be a lot better mm-hmm. than if you live in a, a, one of the poorer communities in the state of Illinois. We all know that. Absolutely. So one of the things that white people can do who live in these affluent areas is say, hey, we're getting rid of this law. We're going to come up with a new way to fund our public schools since we know that education is a foundation and, and a predictor of how well people will do in society and how well they'll do in life. Like, you can increase your chances just by going to better schools. Yep. Okay. So I I would actually prefer them more to change that than to be out there protesting with me, to be honest. That's something tangible you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where we need to go through. And, you know, um, that's where the progress needs to be made on behalf of mainstream America and people of other races. If you really care, then you know what policies are racist. You know. Yeah. Redlining still takes place. Absolutely. Y'all know that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're really serious about this stuff, then start making the policy changes and the fundamental changes in society that keep black people constantly fighting uphill. Yeah. You know, and I, I use gymnastics as a perfect example when I talk to people and white people all the time. And, they'll, and I'll be like, I don't cheer for the black people all the time because I'm racist. I cheer for the black people in sports competitions or whatever we're doing because I know how much harder it is for them. Absolutely. Simone Biles is the greatest gymnast in the world, not because she's talented, but because the difficulty in her routines that she performs is something other people cannot do. So you have to judge her differently and score her differently because her level of difficulty is much harder mm-hmm. than every other gymnasts out there and that's how i view what black americans deal with here in the united states our level of difficulty to reach achievement starting from the moment we're born going through the the school system going through the uh just different social situations you're put in and then the law is always looking at you you're constantly under the gun you're constantly under stress and if you can still thrive in that survivement in, in that environment, then you have to give them more credit because their difficulty level was much higher than everyone else. Excellent, excellent. It reminds me of the meme um, of the two people running a race, and you know the white person has this straight shot, and the black person is at the same mark in life, but there are like twenty five thousand obstacles in her path. Um, That's right. And people think, like I said earlier, they think we're whining. They think. We're complaining, but no, this is legitimately, you know, our struggle. I tell this story often. Um, When I was living at home, we smelled, well, I thought I smelled gas, called 9-11, the fire department came, and they literally, Jason, couldn't focus because they stopped as they walked into my parents' house and said, this is a really nice house. So for a second... (laughs) My mother and I kind of looked at each other and said, is this a dream? You know, if uh, Punk had been out, we'd have been looking around for Ashton Kutcher at the time, right? So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we were like, "Um, what? (laughs) They were like, man, it's really, really nice in here. First of all, gas leak. (laughs) Let's focus. Second of all, you came, you walked in here with this preconceived notion. Uh, We were black. We lived on 63rd Street. Well, they, they still live there. Um, but we were floored because it was like, wait a minute, we work. 
<laughs> you know, uh, we want what we want and people don't understand that something as basic as us having nice things in the house because my mother is HGTV before <laughs> it ever came out was something that surprised these white firemen. It, it illuminated what I had been taught my entire life. Absolutely. Yep. Um, you made a statement on Facebook that I thought was really important. I'm going to shift a little bit to talk about how things can, can change. Um, you said, as it relates to solutions, quote, if we want good cops to turn in bad ones, we have to provide the avenues and support system they need to do so safely. Now, that was profound. I was over here jumping up and down and shouting in my, you know, Baptist girl dance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. What might that look like? So this is just me mm -hmm. speaking um, from my creative side. Sure. So if the government is going to try, let's say, a mobster mm -hmm. and they need the witnesses, they understand what can happen to the witnesses. So what do they do to them? Witness protection. That's right. They put them in a witness protection program because they understand they're dealing with some very high-level organized crime people who will kill them. Mm -hmm. Say what you want. The law enforcement community is a gang. Okay? Mm -hmm. They're a gang. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you hope they're a good gang, but we've seen there's a lot of bad elements in there. Sure. Police officers, um, especially the black ones, are torn between sticking with the gang line and doing what's in the best interest of their community. Yeah. It's always been that way. Absolutely. It's hard for them. Yeah. And it's not just the black ones. But the, again, as we just said, their level of difficulty is going to be higher in any organization. Yeah. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. The old school example is Serpico who was a cop in New York City back in the 70s. This is a true story. You know, uh, he was a detective. And he basically turned in a bunch of dirty cops. As a result of his life being threatened, his career was lost. You know, he had to deal with a bunch of stuff. But he was like, you know, this stuff needs to stop. This corruption on the force needs to stop. Yeah. Okay? Let's fast forward that to the Laquan McDonald case. Mm. People forget that, yeah, Jason Van Dyke was convicted, but they also tried about five officers who lied as to what happened there mm -hmm. on their reports. There was a police officer, a Hispanic officer, female, can't remember her name, Dora or something off the top of my head. She was the one who tricked on them. She was the one who said, hey, they falsified these reports. This is all wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, they eventually did arrest and try those officers. They were all acquitted. All of them. You know, that's the part of the story people forget. Those officers were acquitted. Yeah. But weren't they just as guilty of the crime as, you know, what Jason Van Dyke did? Because they tried to cover it up. Yeah, absolutely. That's public corruption. Yeah. Exactly. You know, they should have been charged. They should have been found guilty. And they should be sitting in a, in a prison right now. Well, this officer came out and said it, you know. What, what has her life been like on the force since then? You know what I'm saying? So we have to create avenues for to make it easier for cops to report other bad cops. My personal idea, and it's not going to happen with our current person in the Oval Office, but, and this is something I was upset with Barack about, um, there needs to be a creation within the Department of Justice or within the FBI um, where all they do is investigate 
um, corruption in law enforcement, mm -hmm. uh, where the federal government investigates every time there's a citizen death at the hands of an officer, whether they were choked, whether they were shot or whatever. There needs to be an independent federal investigation done. As it currently stands, it's kind of a hodgepodge of who investigates who. Most of the time, um, especially in your larger agencies, they have their internal affairs division investigated, which, you know, we've all said, you've got them investigating their own people. That ain't going to work. Like or you got the local district attorney's office, which has to work with that law enforcement agency to get cases proved. Yeah. Well, that ain't an objective investigation <laughs> that's going to take place. Not at all. <clears throat> you see what I'm saying? Sure. So, you know, we need to, there needs to be a federal agency that does this and walks in and does all these investigations. That's the first thing we can do. The second thing we can do is you have to have almost like whistleblower protection. And I know the officers do have that. But, again, they're working in a different kind of environment in law enforcement uh, where, you know, their line is. And the reason why they don't trick on each other is because they'll – and they'll tell you, well, you know, if I'm out of the call and I'm in trouble and I need to make a call in for backup, I'm afraid they won't come. That's right. They won't back them up. You know, mm -hmm. they won't back me up or they'll take their time. Well, isn't that – that's sound like a gang to me. Yeah. That's what it sound like to me. You know, an officer friend. Now, you know, law enforcement people get mad when I call them a gang, yeah. but y'all doing gang stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I got to call it what it is. Yeah. So we have to make it where they're comfortable enough to come forward, where they don't feel their life is going to be threatened, where they don't feel their career is going to be taken down. Uh, I think we, you and I talked the last time about the, the, the guy in Philadelphia, the big time commissioner, what he was doing to that female yes. officer. Yes. Uh, um, you know, he basically was sexually harassing her and giving her terrible assignments, you know, because she wouldn't get with him. Again, that's a game. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's criminal activity. Yeah. Um, so there have to be avenues created for these officers on police forces where they can feel comfortable with saying, hey, this is wrong. And so I saw something that was beautiful yesterday that took place down in Fort Lauderdale. Um, there was a protest going on. There was an, a couple officers who got surrounded by a crowd. They had to call for backup. An officer came, you know, to kind of get the crowd off their officers. And there was a, a black female protester who was there kneeling, both hands in the air, holding a Black Lives Matter sign, kneeling on the ground. And a very large white male officer walked by her, and she was kneeling with a protest sign in her hand, and shoved her, as he was walking by, shoved her in the back of the head, forcing her, like, to hit her head on the ground. Mm. And Tasha, there was a, a sister, police officer, mm -hmm. who was walking behind him and saw this. She immediately ran up behind him and shoved him, started screaming obscenities at him. What are you doing? This is why they out here protesting to begin with when you do stuff like this. And what happened was the crowd had seen him push her, and it, it ignited the crowd. Yeah. So she reacted right away, like, this is exactly what they out here protesting. And she shoved him, she pushed him, she screamed at him, she was cursing him out. That's the type of stuff we need from the, the you know, good officers that they claim are on these forces. Mm -hmm. You need to just be a human being and react right away. So as a result of her, and, you know, it was on video, I'm going to post that video to my page later today. Sure. Um, that officer is now fired. They fired that dude. And the, the chief of the Fort Lauderdale Police Department came on and said, why? And said, hey, I was disturbed by what I saw in the video. But at the same time, I was also proud 
that one of my other officers called this out right away. And that's what needs to happen. And that's what another thing I put on my Facebook page. You know, look, all you officers who claim you good, well, you're not good until you start doing that. Because the fact of the matter is, any of those other three officers could have jumped in and grabbed their boy. They were like, dude, what are you doing? Right. And Mr. Floyd would still be here today. And not only could they have just done it just off GT, they're bound by their duty and their oath to do it. That's right. You're supposed to protect everybody. And if there's a criminal who's in a police costume at the time, then you need to treat that criminal like you would treat anybody else who wasn't in the police uniform. So, I think that is a great uh, note to end on. I really appreciate your insight. We love when you come on the show and, and share, um, you know, all of your wonderful eagle knowledge. <laughs> um, <laughs> we appreciate you. This has been TLC Talk Radio's Tasha Talks. I'm your girl, Tasha. Don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, of course, YouTube. Catch us multiple times a day on TLCTalkRadio.com, 24-7 Edutainment. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>